the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are fortunate to be alive at this moment in history. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The truth is plain to see. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin of The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. And um, it's time, it's time to uh, all uh, pay attention to one man, Mike Benz. Mike Benz is his name. Mike Benz is probably, uh, he's probably the most effective um communicator right now on social media or anywhere else his twitter feed is at mike benz cyber mike B- benz cyber so it's mike benz b-e-n-z cyber c-y-b-e-r you need to go there pinned to the top of his tweet is a video that he recorded he does these he does these um educational videos um quickly it seems like there's a, this one's a 40 minute lecture it's actually from a month or two ago um but it's an ongoing series that he's done and it's particularly uh it's particularly relevant right now so anyway but here here's what want to set this up what what made me think of this to tell you about it um was a headline i noticed on politico i told you i read politico you have to read politico but you you should read politico politico.com to see where the left is and see what they're up to and so I went to Politico. The headline on this Politico uh, article is um, move, excuse me, move over dark Brandon. This group wants to make Joe cool a new meme. And then it describes a group called Progress Now. Progress Now is a left leaning group and it's launched a $70 million project to help Joe Biden instead of being like dark Brandon, which was a nickname he got. Uh, let's go. Brandon was the thing was people chanted and that the media tried to say it said, let's go, Brandon. It didn't say let's go, Brandon. Um, it said F Joe Biden. <laughs> but anyway, that's where that dark Brandon comes from. But they're going to say Joe cool, Joe cool with the sunglasses. The 82 year old or 80 year old president is going to somehow be cool. But with 70 million dollars and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You read this article and you realize that they're going to employ through these organizations, a major liberal group. I, I, I don't know if it's a new group. I, I don't, it's hard to tell for sure, but it, they're starting their own app. It's called Megaphone. And they're going to do what? Well, if you watch and read Mike Benz, he teaches that they're going to set up organizations and they're going to lie to us. Or if you don't like the word lie, you can say they're going to try to persuade us what they want us to believe. You know, they could, you could say, well, they're not lying. They're just trying to persuade us. Except 
we're living in a time. This is what Mike Benz teaches. Mike Benz teaches about how you have to see what's happening and you have to recognize that the left and more importantly, the, the narrative machine, big government working with big tech and big media, the narrative machine is using is building what's called capacity. That's what Mike Benz calls it. They build capacity. He gives an example. He says basically in the in the uh, in some places in the in the world, the CIA and other groups will come in and they'll build capacity. What does that mean? They'll put money out and they'll start organizations. They'll start an organization that does this, nonprofit doing this, nonprofit doing that, a media outlet doing this, a media and they're building capacity to be able to tell the narrative that they want to to the people. Now, if you like what the CIA or, or other agencies are doing in a foreign country because you want uh, to that to happen, you think it's great. But if you're in America and you look up and you say, huh, what's happening here? They're building out capacity and they're building out capacity to do what? To tell us a narrative that it feels like a lie to me. Again, if you're on the other side, I suppose, or if you're maybe you're maybe I'm wrong. But to me, the example that's given in this uh, article in Politico is that they're going to tell us how Bidenomics, Joe Biden's economic plan, is really good for us. And they're going to do that by memes, and they're going to do that by graphics, and they're going to do that in a way to try to tell us. And so you say to yourself, um, are they providing disinformation, misinformation? Sure feels like it. Now, I think they'll say, well, no, no, we're making an argument. But it's not an argument that's real. I don't think. I don't see any data, anything. I don't hear anything from people that says, hey, Bidenomics is really working. Interest rates are high. The debt spending is high. All these things are high. And yet we're watching this happen. So they're building out capacity. And Mike Benz teaches this. And at the same time, they're strangling voices on the dissident side. So if you watch the uh, attacks on uh, the media platforms, Rumble right now, Rumble is being attacked systematically by outside groups to say pressure advertising, excuse me, pressure businesses to cut their advertising uh, on social media like Rumble. Or as Elon Musk has said, when he bought uh, Twitter, now X, he got pressured by all these different groups who said bad things and got advertisers to drop using Twitter. And so you can strangle and, and, uh, and silence one set of voices. And Mike Benz would say diminish capacity. So you diminish capacity for dissident voices, dissenting voices, at the same time that you enhance and grow capacity for the voices that you want. Once you hear the model, you know, I, I, I've, I've talked for years now about the narrative machine. And the narrative machine, I say, is the, uh, uh, whole, the unholy alliance of big government, big tech, and big media. So big government puts out something that they want to be the truth. They run out all their people. They put, you know, one, another example right now is you watch that um, Joe Biden and the administration has put out into the media and they've, they've tried to blame Donald Trump for the immigration problem right now. And if you're on the left, if you're a left viewer on CNN, you hear that and you see it on social media and you see it on the uh, uh, from the government, the numbers that they've changed. They shifted the numbers, as we've learned from uh, Todd Bensman. And so you you end up thinking, oh, yeah, well, that must be true. And so you watch. I'm not, I'm not being as clear as Mike Benz, by the way. You need to go to watch at Mike Benz Cyber and look at him. He's got the background, by the way. He worked at the highest level of government on a bunch of this stuff. And so he saw it firsthand. But I'll simplify it. And I, when I say narrative machine, big government puts out something, say the data, 
They put out the data that's a lie. They've changed the numbers. They've changed how they count. And then the big tech and big media second the uh, thing, and they build a narrative. And the narrative is, oh yeah, that's the the economy's doing fine, really. And but here's the thing. Here's what I'm I'm getting to. The next step that Mike Benz has shown, and we see it, is, and you could call it fortifying the election. That's what happened in 2020. They fortified the election for over a year with money from the outside. They built up capacity to be able to do what they wanted to do, and they diminished capacity. On the other side, the dissident side. And so you can, you can, another way to look at this is look at lawfare. Look at the number of left leaning entities and people, including President Trump, excuse me, not left leaning, the dissidents of the left. So the right leaning that, that are under attack, the lawfare, the so called lawfare. So you've got lawyers that have been uh, dragged into the bar proceedings. You've got indictments in four different courts. You've got attacks on this, attacks on that. And on, so you're diminishing capacity. I can't tell you the number of people that are in the sort of uh, you know communications and political communications game that is afraid of that are afraid of people who are afraid of the lawfare because it can bankrupt you. you if you're targeted by lawfare, you can get bankrupted. You really can, and your your life turned upside down. Uh, Jeff Clark is one of the the most uh, telling examples, um, and he's famous enough that I think he's had some success raising money uh, for his defense fund, but it's still brutally hard. And he's he has to fight, he's fighting at least one that I know of. I think maybe two bar complaints. He's named in one indictment, and he's uh, I think a uh, uh, either a witness or has some other. Um, uh, um, aspect of his life pulled into another one of the indictments, the Trump indictments. So he's spending most of his time trying to defend himself. Normal people can't do that. He's extraordinary. And he's just willing to fight. Normal people need a plea deal, need to step back, need relief. Their family can't take it. They can't take it. So here's my point. Back to my point. Read Mike Benz and and watch for the signals. And for example, Progress Now having $70 million dollars to create a, and they admit to create an echo chamber. Now, do you really think that progress now and its echo chamber are going to be honest? Is that right? And, they, and by the way, they say this all the time. They say the left has been outpaced online. The, the founder of this, uh, the leader of this says, and you want to think to yourself, really? When I look at online and when I look at the narrative machine, maybe she means narrowly on some aspect of online, but the reality is the, all of big media and big tech are left-leaning. And one more detail, by the way, on the, on the Mike Benz, what Mike Benz has taught. When you read further into this article, you hear that there's something called the Strategic Victory Fund, which is an initiative of the Democracy Alliance. And that's where they're getting the $70 million. So you do, you don't have to start digging too long to find out that the, democ- the, that the Democracy Alliance is a group that is not funded by uh, the far left. It's it's the largest. I think it's the largest um, uh, donor group in all democratic politics, and it's dark money all over the place. And it's 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 completely partisan. It's not a nonprofit. It's spending a bunch of its money right now fighting off the uh, third um, third uh, a party uh, possibility, and they're blasting away and attacking uh, no labels. And but you, we don't even know. We do not even know where the Democracy Alliance money is coming from. But we know, as Mike Benz has taught us. That it's going to fortify the election. It's going to it's going to enhance the capacity of the people on the other side. So that's what you need to know today. We got to run. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with John Schlafly, our old friend John Schlafly. He writes the weekly Phyllis Schlafly Report with his brother Andy. And uh, the column is out oh, in the last 24 hours, usually posts over at our sister site, townhall.com, on Tuesday evening. Also available archived with the rest of John's columns at phyllisschlafly.com. Uh, this week's column, Social Justice, quote unquote, Social Justice Demands a Four-Day Workweek. And here we go, John. Um, there's been I thought there was some sympathetic coverage that the unions were striking because, you know, you had this image that they were working too hard and the and the rich uh, CEOs were making more money. But it turns out the demands are, are uh, I don't know, pretty, pretty wild. So walk us through what is happening in Michigan these days. Well, hello, Ed. Yes, we we decided to uh write about what's going on with the auto strike and the auto industry. And, uh, of course, the United Auto Workers is just a shadow, a fraction of what it used to be decades ago. And, uh, you know, they only represent a, a much smaller number of workers and only at the three companies, which are and only two of which are America now. The third one, Stellantis, is far known. But... Um, so they they elected by the uh, earlier this year they elected a radical new president he won by just like a fraction of 1% but he's now taking the union on the warpath uh for every progressive idea and uh he hasn't really figured out how to thread the needle between the concert, uh, the interests of his members who make gasoline-powered cars and uh, mandates to switch to electric cars. And, you know, of course, Biden hasn't either. And there's no way to solve that problem. Electric cars would destroy the American auto industry and it would destroy the jobs of his members. And, uh, uh, but John, but John, at the, at the heart, at the, non-union. Yeah, and 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 all the and every single one of the about a dozen foreign-owned auto plants, which employ hundred a hundred thousand American workers in the United States, but they're all non-union. And United Auto Works has tried to organize them, but you know the workers don't want them. So we have this antique ultra-left pro-communist union, which is still a residue from the days of Walter Ruther. Some of your older listeners might remember Walter Ruther. He was a pro-communist, fellow traveler, uh, left-wing union leader back in the 1950s and 60s. And here is this uh, this narrowly elected. The, the, the other candidate uh, uh, is accusing him of voter fraud, but nevertheless, he's running the union now, and he's taking the union out on strike against the three companies that are based in Detroit, which are General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Uh, we're talking with... <clears throat> and and one of his demands is, you know, we only want to, they only want to work four days a week, but get the same five days of pay. So that was the reason for our headline. That's one of his demands. Well, uh, it's a 40% pay increase and a lot of other things. 
Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly and uh, his column this week. But, John, the, 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 the one that jumps out at you is that they want a four-day work week with five-day uh, pay. I mean, you know, at this point, it, it, is, this, is this, like, serious? I mean, are they serious? This is, uh, as you say, it would it would destroy the industry, the American automobile industry. Uh, I, I feel like the auto workers don't mind working hard, or maybe I'm being too um, – Maybe I'm being too generous and and many Americans that I think would be willing to work hard don't want to work hard. But I I feel like auto workers don't mind working their shifts. But are they real? I I guess what they're trying to do is say work uh, 40 hours in four days instead of 40 hours in five days. And that's the point. It just seems to me to be so silly at this point, as you point, as you describe it, it's social justice, some sort of you know, should be anachronistic term, but it's still thrown around. Uh, is that is that are they serious? And then what does that mean? Well, I think they are serious. And uh, of course, the uh, the union points out that the auto companies did make a lot of money last year. But uh, like any big companies, they're looking forward into the future and not last year. And uh, the, the fact is that uh, the you know, the companies that call uh, sometimes they used to be called the big three, although they're not a lot smaller than they used to be. But GM, Ford, and Stellantis, um, they haven't figured out how to make uh, electric cars that are affordable and that they can make money off of them uh, with a higher with higher labor costs and uh, meet the mandates. And there really is no plan to do that. And uh, they, they're looking ahead and they realize that they're not going to be able to make money on making electric cars. And so they don't want to sign a contract that would effectively uh, risk the, those three companies going out of business again like they did in 2008. No, and let's remember, uh, General Motors was once the biggest, most powerful company in America went bankrupt in 2008. And the main reason they did that was because they agreed to uh, union contracts which committed them to pay for a cradle-to-grave uh, health care with no co-pays for all their former workers and retired workers in addition to their currently uh, people who were currently working. And the company, there's no way the company could possibly have um, financed those payments. And so the company went bankrupt. Now, uh, you know, it, well, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, Americans should remember that because uh, Obama had to bail them out. And he bailed the union out then. So here we are again, and the auto companies can foresee that if they are forced to uh, basically eliminate gasoline-powered cars and only make electric cars, they're not going to be able to make money, and they're not going to be able to afford to pay uh, 40% wage increases to the union members and to pay them five days a week for working four. That's just not going to work. John, is your is your instinct on this? And I'm I'm not saying that you've done all the analysis to look at all these details, but is your instinct that the electric uh, vehicle... um, the the subsidies that have been required to make that even remotely and eco- economically possible situation 
<laughs> pardon me, are are just so flawed and that the way forward is just get over it and, and go back to uh, gas and and uh, and diesel uh, vehicles. Or are we are we past that point where we've artificially stimulated the electric uh, vehicle industry and it will have a future? What's your sense? No, I don't. I, I think it will collapse. Uh, it'll I think be a so. niche. I think it'll so be too. a niche. Yeah. And but the idea that cars and trucks, I mean, don't forget these climate crazies. They're not just talking about passenger cars, but also trucks have to uh, uh, will have to uh, uh, convert diesel power to electric power. I mean, and that really is insane. But nevertheless, that's being rolled out in California right now. And uh, uh, there aren't charging stations available to charge up trucks. What trucking fleets are doing is to set up diesel-powered electric generators and then wheeling up their electric trucks to to charge by diesel-powered <laughs> electric generators. Now, think how ridiculous that is. But, you know, that's what they're forced to do. Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly. You know, it's um, it's it's funny to laugh out loud, but it is it is crazy. And, I, you know, I'm also picturing these truck drivers. There's a sort of a cycle and a, and a sense of those that, those jobs. And if you like that job over the tr- over the road drivers, they, they enjoy it. And they have a imagine these guys are going to have to wait hours and hours and hours to charge their vehicles. They're going to they're not going to it's not going to be gas up in, a, in in 30, you know, 15 minutes, get a cup of coffee and on you keep going. And you're going to have to sit there for six hours. I, it, it, it boggles the mind to think that this is a uh, a, a positive uh, policy. All right, John, we're out of time, unfortunately. John Schlafly, everybody. His column, of course, is over at phyllisschlafly.com. The Phyllis Schlafly Report, this week's column, Social Justice Demands a Four-Day Workweek. And John and Andy Schlafly go through the insanity of what's happening with the uh, automo- automotive strike uh, and where it's headed. We'll talk again soon, John. Thank you, as always. Uh, John Schlafly, everybody. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. You know, um, I uh, last weekend we were in uh, uh, St. Louis, as I've told you often, and we had our uh, Eagle Council. And I, I, one of our guests that was speaking there, I said, you know, this has been a good meeting, but there was one meeting years ago where uh, one of our speakers, Gregory Wrightstone, uh, executive director over at the CO2 Coalition, he had a session and they sent in a, a plant, an Antifa plant to jump up and start trouble. And it was so I said, you know, that was a good session. There was someone who came to the meeting this weekend just to complain about something. I said, but that the complaining and asking hard questions is not as good as Antifa yelling and chanting during your thing, which is what Gregory Wrightstone had happened to him. And we have him as our guest today. It's been a while since we've caught up. Uh, he, of course, is a, a well-known uh, writer now. He's got his book, Inconvenient Facts, a bestseller, and uh, he is the executive director, as I mentioned, at CO2Coalition.org. Welcome, Gregory. How are you? Oh, good. Yeah, that was a lot of fun there when the Antifa guy got up in my face and pointed his finger <laughs> in my know. chest. I walked right into him. <laughs> yeah. I didn't back off. I, walk, I walked forward. I know. It's true. It made it made us a little nervous here. We're going to have a Antifa brawl, and you know we're only a couple miles from Ferguson. Who knows what happens? But uh, anyway, it was great. You're right, and and uh, more importantly, they they yelled and screamed and chanted and didn't have much of an argument, as you know. That's the if you don't have an argument, you bang on the table. Um, Gregory, uh, I, I I didn't get a chance to preview this to you, but Vivek Ramaswamy was asked about all the global change, global warming, climate change, and he called it a hoax. 
but he did it in a particular way. He said he didn't talk even he didn't even take the bait on on trying to, to, to refute the pseudoscientists. He just said the hoax is how much money you expect America to pay and how you set up this elaborate system where Americans are supposed to pay uh, to fix everything and no one else does. I thought that was an, a, a, a clever way to uh, point to a major hole in the argument. It is. They're, uh, they're looking, the developing world is moving full speed ahead, particularly India and particularly China, in developing fossil fuel-fired electricity generation capacity. Uh, the rest of the developing world would love to do that, uh, but many of them are standing with their hands out, looking for the Western nations, and American in general in particular, to p- pay climate reparations. Uh, and we just saw that last week. There was a lawsuit uh, in an international court in, in The Hague where mm-hmm. a number, several dozen island nations, including Tuvalu and the Maldives, uh, we're suing the developed nations, including the United States, for uh, climate reparations because their islands were going to be underwater soon. Uh, over the next couple of decades, they're going to be underwater. Well, we just uh, I just reported that in our, our weekly newsletter yesterday that we published. Uh, those islands, like the Maldives, or the UN lists the Maldives as the most at-risk islands and nation in the world because the highest point's only 14 feet above sea level. And it makes sense if we've got rising sea level that they're going to be underwater at some point. Oh, contraire, not true, not true <laughs> at all. If you look back 15,000 years ago, the Maldives were also barely above sea level. In that time frame, the last 15,000 years, sea levels have risen 400 feet. 400 feet of sea level rise over the last 15,000 years. But here they are still just above sea level. And the reason is this geologic process known as accretion. As sea level rises, uh, the islands actually grow. The storms bring in uh, gravels and sand from the shore face and wash it up onto the surface of the island. So the island naturally grows. So, so what they're saying is, well, uh, and bear in mind, sea levels rising at seven inches per year, which is about two inches by 2050. So what they're saying is, The last 400 feet of sea level rise didn't put these islands underwater, but that next two inches will. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. These same processes are in action today, just like they have been for many thousands of years. We're talking with Gregory Wrightstone, again, executive director over at the CO2 Coalition, and um, he does a great job there, CO2Coalition.org. But also, he's a communicator of the First Order. He's a, he's a speaker, has written a book, uh, Inconvenient Facts, has another book coming out uh, in the next month or so, uh, which we'll hear a lot more about. Um, and But he's, he's good at this in terms of communicating. Um, Greta Thunberg. I like I'm 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 not obsessed with her, but I I found it so uh, sad. It's like Joe Biden is a victim of elder abuse in that White House, in my opinion. I think his wife is doing a disservice to the country and to him. And I think that Greta Thunberg's parents were, uh, you know, mistreating her in terms of that. She's now 20 years old, so she's not a kid anymore. She doesn't get to be a kid. It does feel to me like she she's um, gotten less relevant in America. But that may be because I want to believe that. Is it? Is she um, in Europe? I know they lionize her, and she's you know she's writing books, and I'm not sure she's not writing them, but she's got books that are written with her as the author. But is is her influence has it has it faded? And maybe the worst way to say it is, does it work on young people? That may be the way. That may be why they really use her. Yeah, I'm not 
it sure feels I'm I'm with you. I don't I don't see her out there as much either. I don't have any uh, data to back that up. But yeah, you just don't hear so much from her. Uh, we see from a lot from these other climate activists that are out there marching thousands strong in New York against the UN climate. Uh, they're out there protesting, gluing themselves to statues. Uh, they just threw paint on the Brandenburg Gate in, in Germany yeah. last week, uh, making all kinds of nuisance. They're, I think they're causing problems from themselves, and they, uh, they're causing people to hate with them for doing what they're doing, holding people up from work, uh, stopping hosp- ambulances to getting from hot to the hospital by blocking roads, things like that. Uh, so uh, they're not, but boy, this, this whole climate movement's just... It feels like it's accelerating all the time. But the fact of the matter is, when I talk to normal people, they're thirsty for the information we provide, just like the sea level rise we just talked about that nobody knows about. Uh, we, we provide the data and the facts on fires, global fires, on uh, deserts that are shrinking. Uh, forests are growing. They're not. We're not seeing deforestation. We're seeing reforestation. Uh, we're seeing a greening of the earth. Uh, crops are breaking records year after year. You show people this, and they go, wow, I didn't know that. I thought everything was getting horrible. Everything you're showing me is good. And, that, and that's really the crux of my new book. The title is A Very Convenient Warming, How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Benefiting Humanity. Mm. And, and that's what we find by almost every metric we look at. We find that our ecosystems are thriving and prospering, and humanity is benefiting from the combination of warming and more CO2. And we should celebrate that uh, because, again, we're feeding our agricultural production is greatly outpacing population growth. Uh, so we're feeding a growing population with more and more and more food. And it's because of warming temperatures and more CO2. Uh, Gregory Wrightstone's our guest. Gregory, I just got about two minutes, a little bit under two minutes left. So, uh, and, and I'm on a hard break. Um, but I want to ask you, John and Andy Schlafly wrote, write a weekly column. And one of the columns recently was about the United Auto Workers. And I thought of you because it basically said the United Auto Workers, um, it's just a mess. The whole car industry is a mess. And one of the reasons it's a mess is because the government, the federal government is picking winners and losers, spending pouring money into electric vehicles. Years ago, you told me the electric vehicle uh, market would, you thought wouldn't ultimately would not work no matter how much money you pour into it. Um, and that's John and Andy Schlafly in their column agreed. Is that is that where it's still headed? I mean, I hate to say it, but did we prop up the market long enough that it's it's sort of going to still exist or is it headed towards collapse? Well, I, I think they're going to they're almost going to have to increase subsidies for these. I mean, you buy, buy an EV vehicle right now, you get seventy five hundred bucks, uh, but that's probably not enough. We're seeing a decline just over the last year in EV sales, not an increase. And uh a good friend of the CO2 coalition is a is an auto dealer here in the DC area, and he reports to us that uh, nationwide dealers are seeing over more than ninety days of inventory of EVs on their on their lots. And he tells me that for for a car dealer, they like to keep less than thirty days of inventory oh. of any any type of vehicle. Now they and they're just not moving. They got mm-hmm. more than ninety days of inventory sitting yeah. there going unsold. Uh, that tells me a lot. Yeah, people well, uh, yeah, and, and, and reasons not to. <laughs> and so I think uh-huh. more and more, more, more and more people are saying what my wife has said for years. And she said, 
Where do people think they get the electricity that they plug into? Do they think there's an electric tree or, or a windmill down the block? She's like, it's again, it's gas and oil and and everything else. And so you you fool yourself, but you fool yourself to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies. Unfortunately, Gregory Wrightstone, I've got to go. I'm sorry, I'm up against a hard break. Gregory Wrightstone is the executive a director, and I'll put up on social media, CO2Coalition.org. There's a lot of there, there, a bunch of resources. You can check it out. We've got to take a break. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, a constitutional attorney and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Republican legislatures in 20 states have banned the use of irreversible gender changing procedures on children overcoming the governor's veto in a handful of those states. But in six of the 20 states, liberal federal judges blocked these good laws in response to lawsuits by liberal groups, including the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thankfully, the first appellate decision brought welcome news. On July 8th, the two fine appellate judges, Jeffrey Sutton and Trump-appointed Amul Thapar, delivered a setback to the transgender agenda by ruling to reinstate Tennessee's new law against transgender operations on minor children. The margin was two to one on the Sixth Circuit Appellate Court, with a Democrat-aligned judge dissenting. Appeals also sprouted up after bad district court decisions in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky where beneficial state laws were blocked by those federal judges. Tennessee's new law prohibits surgically removing, modifying, altering, or entering into tissues, cavities, or organs of any person under the age of 18. It also bans prescribing, administering, or dispensing any puberty blocker or hormone to minor children. Judge Sutton's ruling is persuasive and carries added weight due to his strong reputation as a feeder of clerks to the U.S. Supreme Court. Judges Sutton and Thapar wisely wrote this. The state plainly has authority, in truth, a responsibility to look after the health and safety of its children. Tennessee could rationally take the side of caution before permitting irreversible medical treatments of its children. The court found it unlikely that the Supreme Court would create a new constitutional right to transgender operations when no such right has existed in the Constitution for 235 years. This Sixth Circuit majority concluded, as they reinstated the Tennessee law, life-tenured federal judges should be wary of removing a vexing and novel topic of medical debate from the ebbs and flows of democracy. Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. You'll be glad to know the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly continues. Upheld by Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, chairman Helen Marie Taylor, treasurer John Schlafly, a full staff in St. Louis in our nation's capital, and thousands of citizen volunteers, her eagles, across the country. You can be part of that legacy at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And um, so I have a quick story I want to tell you that, um, I mean, we've talked about this before a number of times, this issue. The issue is uh, school choice, educational freedom, uh, making it easier for families to find the best place to educate their kids. And, of course, in the era of COVID, in the post-COVID era, say it better, 
people feel that they say, you know what, I'm going to assert for myself what I want for my kids. It's actually been really, I think, a, a positive fruit of a terrible time was, you know, I'm going to figure it out for myself, whether homeschooling works. I'm going to figure out if um, uh, private schools work, if hybrids work. I'm going to demand something different from the public schools. And over the Eagle Council weekend, Eagle Council 52, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, this incredible, very vibrant discussion between some people who said you just can't stay in the public schools at all, ever, and others that said, hey, look, 90% of the American kids are in public schools. We got to take these back. And I think there's good tension there, good creative tension there in the sense that people are trying to figure it out. So, um, but here's what I want to tell you experience, you know, anecdotal experience. Uh, for uh, much of my life, I grew up, as people know, in New Jersey. And my high school years were spent in Jersey City, which Jersey City at the time was not now. It's, it's somewhat gentrified down, especially towards uh, the river, the Hudson River and, and towards New York City. And, but back then, it was a, a working class kind of city. Jersey City has a reputation, uh, um, you know, I think uh, working folks and some poverty, but in general, a pretty functional city, um, although over time, Time especially it's it's like a lot of American cities, but my experience of it was pretty good. I went to high school there, and I went. I, pl- I was in a private high school and played basketball in the for my private high for my private high school, Catholic high school, and we we played against all the public schools, and I got to know those guys and all. And, it, and some of those schools were pretty rough, uh, but in general, I don't know. I had a pretty good experience, and but I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of any of it. I really wasn't paying attention. It wasn't on my radar to worry about schools and what they were doing. But then I went and uh, moved to St. Louis, and for 25 years, I lived mostly in the city of St. Louis, and I saw firsthand what over the 25, 30 years that have passed, I I was in high school 35 years ago, um, as time passed, what you see is that the, the school systems are completely failing, completely failing large communities. And in St. Louis is where I became most aware of it because I was an adult. I got my first job in the city of St. Louis. It was working on issues, uh, political slash um, kind of social issues. And one of the big ones was school choice. And you could see how how bad it was that the, the city schools in St. Louis were just failing communities. So my story here is that last week I had to go up to Baltimore. For to go to Johns Hopkins, which is one of the premier American institutions of everything. Undergrad is an undergraduate college is really impressive. The business school is impressive, but the medical school is world renowned. Johns Hopkins is a world renowned medical school and a medical center. And if you're from St. Louis, like I am at, you know, Washu Barnes, the big medical center in the, in the center of uh, the central West End is a, is a similar scale and stature, it, but incredible. And so we had to go up there for a doctor's uh, visit. I I won't bother you with those details, but it was, we went up in the afternoon, my wife and I and my son, and we drove um, into Baltimore. Now, I've been there a few times, um, but I haven't been there in the day. I don't know how to, I went to, a, I went to baseball games at, at Camden Yards, the Baltimore Orioles, and I've been there in the past, but I guess I just hadn't been paying attention. This time we went up during the day, I got there in midday, and we're there until probably six o'clock at night, maybe a little earlier. But to get to Baltimore, uh, to Johns Hopkins, you go off the highway down through town, and it just felt like a, it felt like one of these great, 
places with these incredible buildings um you know just an unbelievably historic american city it's got history on every corner and yet there was uh trans transvestite i call them transgender people walking the streets there was homeless people there was decaying cars there was neighborhoods that if you to get to johns hopkins they were just gone i mean it's just it was it was striking how um how it looked like a great city and yet it looked like it was falling apart. And here's, I came home and I've been thinking about it and I, I did some reading on it. And when I pulled up an article on Baltimore, I did a search for Baltimore current state of affairs or something. And, and they have a, I think they have a Soros uh, prosecutor or at least a far left prosecutor. But here's the article I found, which I'll put up on social media. And this is uh, just from five days ago. And it's in the uh, Fox, uh, Fox Baltimore. It's called the Fox News Channel there, the, you know, the local news. The headline is at 13 Baltimore City high schools, zero students tested proficient on the 2023 state math exam. In 13 Baltimore City high schools, zero students were proficient in math. And the quote from a a uh, Baltimore nonprofit is, this is educational homicide. I mean, can you believe that? Can you believe that we in America live in a place where we have the president of the United States, for example, bringing the teachers union president to the White House and bragging on how great she is and how great it is and everything else. And we have a school not 50 miles from the White House that has 13 schools with zero students proficient on the math exam uh, incredible i mean and you look at the list of schools frederick douglas high school zero kids i mean reginald f lewis high school renaissance academy high school vivian t thomas medical arts academy zero kids proficient in math and we think we're succeeding the idea that it's not a five alarm fire, a crisis, and we're fighting over another $350 million to give to Ukraine. It's it's despicable. It's despicable. Anyway, it's, our cities are being failed. We're failing our cities, and we're not serious people that we're not taking it on. So, all right, we got to take it. we got to run. Thank you, Ryan Height, our producer. Mason Mohan, associate producer. We'll be back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.